I interviewed at a few different schools, but there was just this feeling when I got to Regent and I had their full, you know, interview day, full house, you know, you, you're a student here. Um, and I just walked in and I was like, okay, this is, this is the place. Um, and it's still really difficult to put into words other than that the vibe was right. <laughs> I, I just felt um, a sense of community and connection that I didn't experience at other places I had interviewed. Um, Joining me today, I have Dr. Hannah Jones. She is a graduate of Regent University's PsyD program. Post-graduation, Dr. Jones served at West Coast Children's Clinic in Oakland, California. Having a deep interest in working with children, and after having gained much experience in California, Dr. Jones moved back to Virginia and is now serving as an assistant professor here at Regent, where she leads a research group, The Child Clinic. The Child Clinic provides didactic workshops on child clinical care and discussions on facets related to child assessment through a holistic lens, while providing an atmosphere for consultation on child and adolescent cases. This is a much needed research group here at Regent, and I look forward to hearing more about it. Uh, without further ado, we have Dr. Jones. Dr. Jones, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Daniel. Yeah, it's a pleasure, I'm excited. Um, I, I've been starting these with just, can you tell us a little bit about your initial interest in psychology and kind of some, some a little bit more about yourself and your background? Sure. Um, that's a very broad question, so I'll figure <laughs> out how to answer that without writing an entire autobiography. Um, okay. I have never known how to neatly answer that question of when did I first become interested in psychology other than that. Um, when I was in high school, I remember being in, I think, 10th grade and having to write like my first research paper. Mm -hmm. And I decided to write it on the topic of psychology. It had something to do with um, the relationship between the mind and the body or something very broad and vague in 10th grade. <laughs> um, but that was my first kind of dive into the world of psychology. And I was immersed from then on. Um, so I knew from that point forward that I wanted to get into psychology. And so I took AP psychology in high school um, and then majored in psychology in college. Um, and so that has always kind of been my path. But mm. I think the um, the specific direction of my psychology career has been ongoing in development and continues to be so. Um, and so that has always been taking shape and taking form. Um, so I think I first kind of knew that I wanted to work with children and adolescents. Um, when I graduated from college and I took a job as a um, recruiter slash a kind of, um, what's the word, like a uh, management kind of administrator for a local nonprofit mm -hmm. um, that was focused on providing mentorship for youth who were identified as at risk in the kind of Eastern Tidewater, Virginia area. So children who had incarcerated parents or who were in touch with the juvenile justice system themselves or were kind of identified as at risk of um, getting into legal trouble um, in other ways. And so my job there was to, one, identify adults who wanted to commit to a year of mentorship 
with those youth, and then also to identify youth who would be a good fit for the program. Um, and in that process, I had to kind of build relationships with those mostly adolescents, but some younger children as well. Um, so we had interviews and I um, conducted at-home visits. And so there was a lot of um, the relational aspect of um, identifying children who were at need, right? And then integrating them into a system of care and holistic support. So that was really my first in-depth exposure to some of the work that I really care about. And it was this perfect integration of some of my interests in psychology, which are children and adolescent development, but also systemic um, care and systemic um, advocacy approach to care, as well as a culturally informed and holistically informed approach to psychological care. So it was this interaction of all of those things. Yeah, well, uh, the, what did it look like as far as, this is kind of just a side question, um, but finding a mentor for these, for these children and adolescents, um, what, what was kind of the mentor's role within, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, if I recall, because this was in 2010, <laughs> um, <laughs> not a while ago, but um, to the best of my memory, they committed to four hours a month of one-on-one -on -one in person time with the youth, um, which could take the form of whatever, you know, um, quality time seemed the most um, healthy and also engaging for them and for that youth. So often that would involve taking them out for ice cream or engaging in activities that they enjoyed together or um, inviting the youth to opportunities to kind of be exposed to topics and to subjects that they found interesting but didn't have a lot of access to otherwise, like um, attending talks or attending um, you know, I, I don't want to use the word lectures because that sounds incredibly boring, but things that the youth were interested in, yeah. um, college seminars, that kind of thing. That's neat. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that's neat that you were able to. So with the bachelors, you you were working there at that at that job and doing you were. Was it a case manager? You said? Yes. OK. Mm -hmm. um, is that in your was it difficult to get a position like that with only having a bachelor's in psychology? It actually wasn't. Okay. And I think one of the reasons that it was not was that this was um, a nonprofit organization that uh. was just getting started. So it was really building from the ground up. Okay. And also because this was a, a nonprofit that was looking specifically to identify um, people who had shared I think intersectional identities with mm. a lot of the community that was being served. And so um, in some ways I had intersections, for example, in terms of race, ethnicity um, and other aspects of my own background that allowed me to kind of relate to some of the b barriers to access that some wow. of the children were um, experiencing. In other ways, there was a lot for me to learn. And I also learned a lot about my own privileges and how those showed up in that space. But um, but because they wanted people who could relate on that um, in that kind of engaging way to the youth and not in sort of a yet another healthcare professional whom the youth didn't really feel trustful of, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that allowed me to enter in. And then also I, you know. Just to talk myself a little bit up, I have some skills and some um, strengths that I think 
got me in the door as well, even mm -hmm. without more than a bachelor's degree. Yeah. Yeah. You, um, just something that I remember. So I know you like writing like poetry and, um, I would say you're a pretty good writer. And I think, uh, writing, if you can write well and you have a good crafted resume, and I think that gets you through a lot of doors just by itself. Yeah, I would say that that has been true. But interestingly, I would also say that in my experience, um, that hasn't always been the top criteria. It okay. kind of depends on the context and the setting, right? But um, I do think that broadly in kind of the mainstream Western professional cultural framework that we're all sort of socialized toward, mm -hmm. um, that is kind of the pathways like education, higher and higher degrees, well-structured resume, we know how to present ourselves, that kind of thing. Yeah. And then I've encountered spaces like that nonprofit organization where those things were important, but they weren't as important as my ability to relate or to um, self-reflect or to understand mm -hmm. my own experiences and the experiences of the clientele that I was working with. So there's wow. this, I think that has fed really importantly into my own professional identity now mm. where there's this combination of those two pieces that both hold professional value for me yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense self-reflection is a skill and it's very difficult yes, it is yeah. <laughs> it's <a lot> of <laughs> work. okay so and then so you got some pretty good experience there and then um that's what led you to apply at regent university yes so let's see at the end or near the end of my time there, I began applying to graduate schools. Okay. Um, so there were a few that I applied to, but I was living in Hampton Roads and that's kind of where my family from. This has always been home for me. Hmm. And so I was more interested in staying close to home than I was in traveling to like another state. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I interviewed at a few different schools, hmm. but there was just this feeling when I got to Regent and I had their full, you know, interview day, full house, you know, you, you're a student here. Yeah. Um, and I just walked in and I was like, okay, this is, this is the place. Mm. Um, and it's still really difficult to put into words other than that the vibe was right. <laughs> I, I just felt um, a sense of community and connection that I didn't experience at other places I had interviewed. Um, yeah. So that's really, I think, what drew me more than anything else to Regent. Hmm. Um, am I allowed to ask how your time here was as, as a student? Yeah, I mean, it's your <laughs> podcast. Um, yes. So let's see. My time as a student was a mixed bag for a lot of reasons. Um, some of the reasons being, I think the standard stress that comes with being a graduate student, as you know very well, yeah. um, right? And, 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 and juggling for the first time a lot of multiple responsibilities that are all housed within the field of psychology versus kind of having like a part-time job here and taking some classes here and mm. doing some other things I'm interested over here and some extracurricular activities. Like I was heavily concentrated in the world and immersed in the world of psychology. On the one hand, that's what I wanted. So wow. it was incredibly motivating. And on the other hand, it was also overwhelming. Mm. Um, but but I, I think there was a lot of um, structural support. So in our SID program, as you know, we have the cohort model. And I found that cohort framework incredibly helpful because 
um, when there were times that um, when there were times that we were kind of navigating just the ups and downs of being in a graduate program, there were 20 other students who were going through the same thing at the same time. And we could all commiserate, but also collaborate. And we had all kinds of like chat threads and um, resources helping each other get through. And so I very much remember my cohort as a major support um, all the way through the program. And to this day, I still have very close, some of my closest friends come from that cohort. Oh, okay. um, but at the same time, my family was going through a lot. So mm. my mother was diagnosed with a brain tumor in mm. 2010. And so the whole time that I was in the program, um, she was dealing with that. And so my family was dealing with that, right? And so uh-huh. At the same time that we had practica training and classes and all of this, I was also um, going home to Newport News to help take care of my mother and mm. um, and her conditioning was worsen, worsen her condition was worsening over time. Um, so she ended up she passed away. Um, let's see, right before I went to internship. So I will say that my entire time in the program is inextricably linked to, I think, just the struggle and the grief of dealing with a sick and dying parent. That's a Mm. reality. Um, And so there's a lot of resilience and a lot of strength, a lot of learning about my values and about my faith and all of that that came out of that, Um, but also was incredibly difficult. Yeah, what a. What an incredibly challenging time and just school by itself. Um, school by itself is so overwhelming. And even even when you have maybe a good support system or healthy family members, it, it is so overwhelming. And then to have a parent, a mother to be going through that the whole time. And and yeah, I, the, the way you did say you said it's inextricably linked. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, looking back, that's got to be you can't really parse that apart. You can't really parse it apart. Like, no, I can't, yeah. I can't, yeah. I can't think about my time in grad school without also thinking about that. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and that comes with, like, it, it comes with bitter blessings is the phrase that comes to mind. Uh-huh. Um, that there was, like I said, so much that I learned about my coping strategies and about mm-hmm. what I needed to um, talk about in my own therapy and about, uh-huh. Um, learning about my family dynamics and um, and about my ability to be resilient and to um, have strength, but also to acknowledge my emotions and all of these things, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, all of these things that were incredibly important parts of my growth journey and continue mm. to be. Um, so yes, incredibly hard, painful, and also necessary question mark uh-huh yeah no i i imagine it helped a lot in many ways working with clients but i also wonder if you had certain clients you weren't able to work with during that time mm, that's a good question i don't know that i had the insight at the time okay you have been able to recognize that although in retrospect i can definitely think of more than one client that i probably was not ready for mm. um but actually one thing that comes to mind is not a client so much as there was a so in our program we have cdls um these cultural uh 
what is it, cultural shift, paradigm shift initiative, cultural development series, uh-huh. where students can present on a particular topic related to some um, unique aspect of human development, cultural development, et cetera. Mm. And so another student also had a parent who had dealt with a brain or was dealing with a brain tumor. And so we decided to do a presentation on, I think it was on coping with um, grief when you have a parent who has a brain tumor. Hmm. And I, you know, I participated with that student in the brainstorming process and then withdrew just completely Uh um, from the entire rest of it. And at the time I didn't know what was happening, but Uh when I think back on it now, I'm like, I was not ready to approach that topic and especially to talk about it in public, especially from an academic perspective. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, And so through what, what research teams were you a part of while you were going through Regent? Yeah. So at the time there was a research team called the I'm going to try to get this right. Tidewater Child and Family Behavioral Health Center. But it was focused on child and family. Um, And so I was heavily immersed in that research team. And um, I didn't really participate actively in other research teams. I was a part of the Association of Black Psychologists, ABCI. Uh Um, And in fact, I was president of that organization for a year. And then I served some other roles on that organization as well. And we did a lot of growing and a lot of kind of cross-departmental interacting during that time. So that was exciting. Mm. Um, But I think those were my two primary um, kind of extracurricular activities. And then I also did participate as, I think I was the vice president of CAPS, the Christian Association of Psychological Studies Student Circle. Um, And then I was engaged in just some other kind of community and university roles. Um, I was working closely with um, now Executive Vice President uh, Hathaway um, on a community project uh, that was called the Coleman Place Project that was um, building on some of those earlier skills from my case manager position where um, we were connecting with a um, lower resourced, primarily African-American community in Norfolk. And we were drawing a relationship between Regent University and that community and then identifying where there were needs for um, not only mental health support, but maybe other resources and supports as well. So I was the community liaison for that. I think those are the main things. Yeah. So they used to have a a child research team and then they no longer have one. And so you're bringing that back. Is that your kind of your aim, your goal? Sort of. So the child um, team Uh has gone through a lot of iterations since I was a student here Uh um, because I think the child role has gone through a lot of iterations. Mm. And one of the reasons for that might be because Um, there's typically only been one kind of child-focused person on the faculty, and there are many, many students interested in child and adolescent development. Um, And so when I returned, yes, I wanted to reestablish and kind of establish a stable, steady research team that students could get involved in and then stay involved in for as long as they wanted to. Mm -hmm. Um, And also to create, I think, a sense of partnership between students and myself that 
um, the research team would be driven by what students were most interested in and motivated by in the realm of childhood development and functioning. Uh Um, So not driven by just what I wanted to see um, data about, right, but what students wanted to explore. And so I'm finding that happening where there's a lot of collaboration and students are kind of reaching out with their ideas for research projects. And um, and that's really exciting. People are getting super creative and I love okay. that. Um, and also just, I, I think again, the advocacy and systemic care professional value that I hold is a central part of pretty much any work that I do. Mm. And so I do approach um, the care team, which is childhood advocacy, research and education. That's the name of the research team. The child clinic is kind of a subset of that. Um, But that care team focuses on childhood development and functioning within the various systems that they navigate. So um, by working with healthcare professionals, um, juvenile justice, education system, the family system, et cetera, to advocate on behalf of the child and to respond to that child's intersecting identities and all of those other kind of factors that I think can sometimes go missing when we're looking broadly at childhood functioning. Mm, Yeah. So, so care, that's, that's your research team. And then you started a separate kind of childhood clinic. Yes. Got it. So here's the research team. Uh-huh. And then the child clinic is a more concentrated opportunity that is open to anyone who needs consultation around their child focused um, cases. Okay. And the reason for that was because I was having students needing consultation from me. Mm. Like, very frequently. (laughs) And so I was like, okay, let's schedule a time when we can make this happen. Um, And again, uh, uh, offered students that I knew were invested in that particular topic, Uh the opportunity to supervise students who needed that consultation. Um, So they're really taking it and running with it. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's, it's lovely to see them exercise their leadership capabilities and their creativities. Yeah, that's really neat. That's neat. Okay, so Okay, so through Regent, um, you served all these different roles, and then it came time for you to fly the nest and to go to internship. Um, did you, knowing that you wanted to do child or adolescent psychology, did you mainly only apply to internship sites that were heavily focused on that? Mostly, Mostly. yes. So I think our our recommendation in the program is to have maybe a couple of more general sites that have um, a pretty strong acceptance rate for Regent students just to round out the internship site list um, and increase odds of matching. Um, But almost exclusively, my site was focused on either exclusively child and adolescent Mm. um, focused centers or where there was a rotation with child and adolescent focus. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then you went, um, you, a lot of people I hear, I've been talking to from Regent, they got their, you know, at least one of their top three picks. Did you get one of your top three? Was it pretty good for you? Yes. So I definitely did. I don't remember where my site, it wasn't number one. Um, I don't remember where it was on the list, but it was within that top quadrant. Good. Um, I think it might've been 
the third, maybe the second site. Good, yeah. um, but it was definitely the site that I was the most invested in. And then okay. to be honest, I started ranking based on anxiety. Um, <laughs> so I was like, where do I think I'm most likely to match? Which is the exact advice that we as faculty, um, it's the exact opposite of, uh, huh. of the advice that we give students, where huh. we tell them not to rank based on how they think sites are going to rank them. Um, hmm. But that's exactly what I did. So I ended up ranking the site where I felt I had interviewed the best, uh -huh. but the site that was my favorite and where I felt the most um, energized and excited to be was the site where I matched. And so oh. in my mind, I matched at my top site. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, all the way. So you didn't want to go to college uh, in a different state, but then internship, California, right? Yeah, um, is how this, that happened? Yeah. Is this, um, uh, I forget the name of it now. Is it just um, West West Coast Child Care? Yeah, West Coast Children's Clinic. West Coast Children's Clinic. Is that um, pretty notorious or did you find it upon searching or why, why there? Yeah, so they are fairly well known, hmm. especially on the West Coast. Uh -huh. um, but there have been a few Regent students who have been there. And so prior to me, there had been a student who was a fourth year when I was a first year who completed his internship there. Huh. And so I found out about the site through him and um, had heard that he was having a really positive experience there. Yeah. Um, I had worked with him on ABCI earlier in the program. And oh. so I was just learning that there was kind of an integration of, again, those values that I spoke to earlier yeah. at that site. So I knew that I was interested in interviewing there. And interestingly enough, when I went there, again, the ranking based on anxiety, um, <laughs> when I interviewed, um, the site has a pretty heavily, I think, psychodynamically focused undertone, even if they don't explicitly say <laughs> that that's their sort of orientation. <laughs> and so there were a lot of um, questions from the perspective of my own kind of development and childhood. And again, that self-reflection. And mm. I think on one level, I was able to respond thoughtfully to that. But on another level, I was like, I haven't done this in an interview format before. I'm not sure, mm. like, I don't know how to answer your questions about my childhood and what I felt when I dealt with this client. You know, yeah. um, I've been trained to sort of um, approach things from this cognitive theoretical perspective or um, kind of a very systematic perspective. And so mm. that just from the interview forward was a very, interesting introduction and integration into the way I started thinking about clinical mm. cases. Um, so, but that I think was a piece of also what drew me there was that I was like, there's a lot for me to learn here. Um, and so even though I felt like I got tripped up during the interview phase and I started panicking when I ranked, um, I also felt really hopeful that I would be there because I saw so much of my areas for growth as well as my personal and professional values showing up at, at that site. Oh, good. That's really neat. That's good to hear. And and so and you did your internship and your postdoc there? I did. Yeah. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience there? Yes. So ooh, where to begin? <laughs> um, West Coast Children's Clinic is a another nonprofit. It's a mm -hmm. community mental health center located just in the center of Oakland, California. Mm -hmm. So if you know the Bay Area at all, um, there is a lot of disparity in terms of wealth, in terms of access to resources. Um, there's a lot of homelessness, a lot of poverty, mm -hmm. um, children and youth 
uh, unless they are particularly, if they, unless they have a particular channel of access to those needed resources, um, they often find themselves at risk of not receiving the nutrients and nutrition that they need, um, not receiving some of the other basic care needs that they have. And so West Coast Children's Clinic seeks to kind of address that, again, from this holistic systemic perspective. So it is a mental health clinic, and most of the workers there um, are either counselors, social workers, or psychologists. Um, and so I was doing therapy and assessment there, um, but there are also kind of, um, there are departments that focus on um, social work and connection to external resources. There are sections that focus on transitioning age youth who are moving into early adulthood and in need of some of the specific skills and resources that come with that. Um, foster youth specifically. Um, there's a section that focuses on children who have just been removed from the home um, and are now in need of placement somewhere. So it's like all, all around, right? Yeah. Um, and so my role there as an intern and as a postdoc was to typically work with children and adolescents who had um, either recently or maybe a while, a while ago received um, a stable placement. So whether they were in foster care or they were still in their home or had been returned to their biological home um, and then coping with some of the sort of more access one um, secondary impacts of all of that change and transition. So a lot of working with adolescents who had trauma, um, very heavy trauma focus, hmm. um, a lot of emphasis on working with anxiety and depression, a lot of emphasis on working with families and with caregivers on responding to their child's needs, and then a lot of cultural integration all throughout as well. Um, approaching assessments from the therapeutic collaborative assessment kind of framework, which emphasizes um, using assessment as a therapeutic tool. So mm. not only the gathering of objective data points and then kind of coming up with a diagnosis and creating concrete recommendations based on that, but also identifying how that process in and of itself can be therapeutic to the child and to their caregivers. Um, mm. So a very collaborative, very relational um, approach to assessment as well, which really resonated with me. Good. Yeah. Yeah, that, that collaborative approach, is that something that you learned there? Like that's how they kind of taught and did things there? Yeah, so I think I was first exposed to TCA before I got to West Coast at some okay. point in the program. Yeah. Um, um, but I think that was my first time really practicing mm -hmm. that approach was when we got to that program. And one of the things, uh, when I got to internship, and one of the things I loved about the assessment process there was that um, we would end assessments, you know, often when we finish an assessment, we hold feedback with caregivers and we, uh, assessment of a child specifically, we hold feedback with caregivers, give them kind of a breakdown of this is all of the information that I've gathered. This is what I'm seeing. These are the consistent themes throughout the different measures that I utilized. And here's what I'm recommending based on that. Um, but sometimes kids get missed in that process. And so mm -hmm. 
actually in my private practice, when I work with adults, I have so many clients who say, well, so many out of the handful of clients that I see, a good uh -huh. number of them say, you know, I got this assessment when I was 14 and I have no idea what were the tests they gave me or what it meant. All I know is that suddenly I was on Vyvanse, right? Hmm. Um, and so we really integrated the child into the feedback process as well. So one of the things we did was to create a feedback story or a feedback narrative or some other kind of creative feedback um, approach so that the child had a way of concretely understanding what this assessment meant for them. Mm, that's really cool. Yeah. And yeah. that's one of the things I loved about that approach. That's really neat. A lot of I don't think a lot of people take the time to actually I think a lot of people know, you know, I think that this has therapeutic value, but then taking the time to write out an extra kind of piece for the child and yeah, yeah, it certainly yeah. does. I mean, it does take additional time and energy and resources. And so I understand why it's not integrated into everyone's practice, um, yeah. but I think it has immense value. Mm. Yeah. And um, when you, so you say you worked with like a trauma and doing therapy, did you use trauma focused CBT or what kind of therapeutic, uh, yeah, modalities did you did you utilize so i think west coast is really where my style became a lot and my orientation became a lot more integrated and kind of okay. eclectic um because i was trained pretty heavily on tfcbt in mm. the regent program okay um, I learned a lot about CBT from a trauma-informed perspective. Um, I learned a lot about some of the more systematic kind of approaches to therapy. Mm. Um, and then in my training at West Coast, it was more, again, psychodynamically focused. Mm. Um, and so that's where I began to sort of bring in elements of, uh, of TFCBT and other aspects of CBT, and also exploration of early relationships and early attachment, mm. and how those might be manifesting in current relationships, um, and also family systems kind of um, integration and framework when that was appropriate and also bringing in elements of interpersonal therapy and um, so on and so forth. So yeah. now in my practice, I pull from any corner you can imagine. Um, I think I still focus a lot on elements of TFCBT, elements of ACT, um, and, and then just kind of my primary focus is on the relationship and on allowing space for attention to the emotional experience and for corrective relational experiences, not only in the therapeutic relationship, but then also in that child's relationship with um, primary attachment figures in their life. Hmm. One of the things that um, I think can be discouraging when working with children or adolescents is that there is a lot of like um, systemic or family um, kind of impediments or obstacles maybe. And I don't know if I'm going to say this articulately, but when you're working with an adult and they are ready to move forward, um, it's a lot easier than when you're working with a child and you say, well, can you do this? And then maybe their parents wouldn't be on board or other caregivers wouldn't, wouldn't be on board. Um, or just the, they don't have like a car, so they can't. So mm -hmm. all of these different things, um, do you find that what, I guess, what's one of the bigger challenges or, um, 
maybe discouraging areas to work with children that you've found in your experience? Yeah, that is a really valid question that brings up a lot. Um, <laughs> I think I have found myself particularly frustrated when um, I've worked with children whose caregivers weren't particularly or didn't seem particularly invested in their care. Hmm. And I can understand lots and lots of external reasons why that might be the case. Yeah. And my own countertransference comes up where I feel particularly frustrated on that child's behalf. Hmm. Um, you know, and I know that, especially in the setting of West Coast where I was working, where there weren't a lot of external resources, um, parents and caregivers, if they were present at all, yeah. often were very much immersed in just trying to meet basic needs um, or um, trying to get their own emotional needs met or have been socialized in a way that didn't highly value mental health. Uh -huh. um, and so there were a lot of reasons that it made total sense for it to be common for caregivers not to be as actively involved in their child's care. Hmm. Um, and even with that being the case, I could find myself feeling very frustrated. Um, I would also feel very stuck when access to resources was the thing that was getting in the way of therapy, hmm. right? Yeah. So yeah. Um, at West Coast, we, um, conducted therapy, we tried to remove as many barriers as possible. So we would meet with clients in whatever space they had access to. If it was a local library, then we tried to reserve a private room. If it was a McDonald's, then we tried to find a booth in the corner. You know, it wasn't always in the office at a set time. Sometimes we had to be really flexible with our schedules. Sometimes we had to drive up and down the highway. Sometimes <sighs> therapy happened in the car picking the child up from school, which I know is um, kind of a really different setup from a lot of the kind of more common practices. But for that population, it was what made sense. And I think we were able to do that in professional and ethical ways. Um, but even with that being the case, there sometimes would just be too many basic needs that weren't being met and that the child just did not have the ability to address on their own. And so therapy couldn't happen until that was the case. So for example, I remember having, I think an 11 year old client, one of my very first clients on internship who did not have a home. And so she and her family had been living in a van for like a long time. Mm. And we met in the office whenever possible her mom would not allow me to conduct therapy in the van. And I could understand that might have had a lot of, there might've been a lot of reasons behind that, including logistics, maybe including shame, maybe including um, legalities, who knew, yeah. right? But um, so I, we met in the office whenever we could, but it just couldn't happen on a weekly basis. Mm. Um, even with that being the case, that child made so much headway, um, but I found myself, uh, having trouble identifying where my therapeutic role was because it was hard to process what underlying emotions were at play when we were trying to figure out, you know, where her next meal was going to come from or yeah. what she needed um, to be safe that night. Right. Uh -huh. And, and I was not able to separate that out from my therapeutic role. And I don't think that 
I needed to. I think that was a part of our work in a way mm. that I haven't even fully articulated still. Um, yeah. 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 Cause, um, so my mind just went to, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, let's say, mm -hmm. and, um, you don't know how healthy, how, let's say the, the mental faculty of this child, what it would be like if their basic needs are met. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, yeah, it's like, it's almost, well, how much, how much therapy can we really do when, when they're not getting their basic needs met? Um, yeah, is you might have answered that, but, but that does seem very uh, kind of a. It was a huge challenge. Yeah. And I think it also challenged me to expand my definition of therapy. Okay. That therapy, at least in that context, but I, I think also there are ways this is valuable in even more traditional therapeutic settings. Hmm. That therapy was more than just 50 minutes a week at the same time, same day every week where we utilized these empirically supported interventions mm -hmm. for this particular population with this particular presenting pro uh, problem, right? Oh, yeah. that, that definitely has value and I think is an important foundation of a lot of therapeutic work. Yeah. But that therapy in that context also was very heavily built on just providing a safe space of containment mm -hmm. where she could engage relationally with someone who was going to be present, fully present with her for that amount of time, even if all we did was color, yeah. all we did was color, right? Yeah, or even yeah. if, um, even if we just talked about what her day was like at school, mm -hmm. there was immense value in that therapeutic value for her in that and that also my role just in talking with her mom to help her identify the um, resources and community agencies and whatever else she needed hmm. in order to meet her child's needs yeah. was a part of that therapeutic work yeah. um, and so i carry that with me like i said even when i'm working in more traditional therapy spaces now that um, the therapeutic work is all of the above right mm -hmm. yeah. yeah yeah the therapeutic relationship is kind of the you know the driving force behind all yeah. every, everything else that happens it's and and i read somewhere that that the better you are with children the more one uh, a lot of parents you know even even um even suicidal parents, they'll say, what's what's your number one reason for living? And they'll say, my children. And I think a lot of parents, they might kind of neglect themselves, but then if their child is, if they can see their child suffering, they're like, I want to get my child help. So they bring them to, to someone like you. And then if you establish a good relationship with the child, then you're more likely to have some kind of positive influence on the parent and to get them connected to resources and social workers and yeah. yeah. I have definitely seen that where the child's therapy is the impetus for the caregiver getting into therapy or doing some of their own self-reflection or like me sneaking in a little bit of not therapy for the parent, but on the child's behalf. Like yeah. in what ways are your patterns potentially impacting your child and what is there more to be explored there, right? Um, yeah. As well as what are some of the other resources that I can help connect you to? Yeah, yeah, that's really neat. And so are you are you um, kind of running a private practice now as well here in here in Virginia? 
Yes, so I run a small private practice that is um, exclusively telehealth based right now because okay. we're still in the throes of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I I have uh, what's called the SIPACT licensure leg- uh, thing that lets me <laughs> work with clients um, from a number of states across the country. Oh, um, so I don't work with anyone outside of the Virginia, Maryland, D.C. area currently, um, but I do work with patients throughout Virginia and up into D.C. and Maryland. Um, I have a mixture of adults and children, um, and I'm finding it really fulfilling. Good, good. How, how is that um, over Zoom with, with children clients? It's actually pretty successful. There's a lot of helpful resources out there. And I think those have really just blossomed and are continuing to grow just over the past couple of years. I mean, I think teletherapy has really only become a consistently used tool within the past decade. Um, And so doing that work with children became even more of a necessity during the pandemic. Um, So there's lots and lots of resources out there. So I have um, found... Um, tools for um, working with children, it, playing some of the games, therapeutic games that we might play in person over the screen, mm-hmm. using different um, different uh, technological tools to engage with the child in a, um, a, like kind of in the face-to-face way, yeah. using music as kind of a means of connection. Mm-hmm. So there's all, all kinds of resources that are really helpful. Yeah. Do you mind? Um, I... I just used uh, kind of like a card game called CBT123. Do you have any kind of quick go-to resources for people working with children? That's a great question. Um, There is one, so it's just a PowerPoint that a child psychologist put together, um, but it's just a collection of her kind of most effective techniques for teletherapy Ooh. with children. Yeah. Um, I'm happy to email it to you. It's not yeah. like anything you can find on the internet, but it's just a set of games and kind of reminders, like make sure that they have a private space and mm. um, check these technological steps before you get started, that kind of thing. Yeah, um, that would be nice. I'd be happy to email that to you. Okay. Um, and then maybe the last question I have is, um, do you have any good, uh, or who's been influential for you? Maybe an author, um, a professor, coworker, um, or maybe some book recommendations that kind of in that area. Yeah. Yeah. I'm taking my time because there are a lot of people I can think of, um, (laughs) So I'll start within our program. I think some of the most influential people have been those close friends who, uh, from my cohort who mm-hmm. have become some of the closest friends and also colleagues that I trust and respect. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't want to name them all by name because they may or may not want to be named, but just kind of that cohort. Yeah. Um, and then also within the program, Dr. Cassandra Page, who is our Uh, program director beginning in the spring um, came in as a professor when I was a fourth year student. Okay. Um, And I remember her presence as being very um, encouraging and motivational 
and aspirational. And I was like, okay, I want to be like her. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I, and so now it's just an incredible blessing to get to be a colleague and also to call her a friend yeah. on kind of this egalitarian level. I didn't expect that. And I love it. Um, more broadly, um, let's see. I really value um, so many different authors. Gosh, I'm going to have to think on that one. Okay. Um, you know, there is a resource that I believe is in my office on campus, um, but it is called the Complete Child Psychotherapy Treatment Planner, and it's a comp compilation of just all kinds of treatment interventions and approaches from different perspectives that is focused around child development um, and common presenting problems for children. Um, and so even though that's not necessarily a person who inspires me, it's a resource that I really, really value. Mm. Um, yeah, and then can I can I email you if other names yeah. come to mind? I think I'm just kind of blanking right now, but yeah. there's there's a lot out there. Yeah, yeah, that's perfectly. Yeah, and then um, I can even link them in the description below. Okay, yeah. sounds good. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. All right, Dr. Jones, it's been a pleasure getting to know you better. Um, I think a lot of people will find this very useful. And thank you, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for the work you're doing. Oh yeah, pleasure. <laughs>